According to a new report from ABC News, 12 U.S. cities have set all-time records for murders. Of course, the left is blaming COVID, but the real reason is obvious. Stupid Democrat ideas about crime, the BLM movement, and progressive prosecutors who think that being soft on criminals is some kind of virtue. I'll take a look at the grim numbers in tonight's Hold the Line. Welcome to Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. We've been telling you for some time now about the massive spike in crime across the country, which not only began in the middle of 2020, during a pandemic, no less, but of course, right when the BLM movement got going again and the left felt ascendant on criminal justice issues, but it has continued into 2021. In fact, many cities have even worse years in 2021 than they did in 2020. So this is a long-term trend with major ramifications. And to put it into context and to give a sense of what's really going on, at least 12 major U.S. cities, according to ABC News, have broken annual homicide all-time records in 2021. And there are still three weeks to go in the year. Of the dozen cities that have already surpassed the grim milestone for killings, five top records that were set or tied just last year. Think about that for a moment. Twelve major cities have the biggest annual homicide uh, years ever. That's stunning. Here you go. Here's a map that'll show you the 12 cities that have broken records. It includes Philadelphia, Columbus, Ohio, Austin, Texas, Tucson, Arizona, Portland, Oregon, and St. Paul, Minnesota, among others. Uh, This is horrific. I mean, this is when you add it up. We're talking about hundreds, perhaps even in the thousands of additional people killed over about an 18-month period compared to historic trends in these cities. Something is clearly going on. We all know that. And the American people are seeing these numbers and are becoming increasingly aware that something is up. There's an issue here. So now Democrats have to try to address it by, oh, that's right, you know, finding some scapegoat, finding some cause, or maybe even some external factor that they have no control over. Here is, among the worst mayors in the country, Mayor Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, here she is blaming the violence in her city, over 700 murders in Chicago for the past year. Think about that for a second. Uh, It's stunning how many people are being killed in Chicago. Here's Lori Lightfoot blaming the rise in violent crime on COVID-19. Chicago is set to pass or has passed 800 homicides this year. Um, Your reaction and what can be done to to stop it? I want to be clear, we're not at 800. Um, And obviously, uh, we're working every single day to um, end end homicides um, in our city. We don't want to see that number rise above where it's at. But look, I've said this before, this is a very challenging time. And I think the crime wave that we've been experiencing, other major cities across the country, like New York, like LA, St. Louis, DC, Atlanta, Denver, and places that don't normally see um, high levels of crime, uh, places like Austin, Texas, um, all of us are, are challenged in this time. Every single part of our public safety infrastructure has been dramatically impacted by COVID. COVID, she's saying. Interesting. People are shooting more people. Criminals are being more violent because of COVID? That's interesting, especially considering that during the lockdown period, uh, there were far fewer people on the streets, that there are many more people who are in their homes, and generally there's less contact outside the home where most murders and most shootings are going to occur. 
But let's even take it beyond murders and homicides for a second, or murder rather, and shootings. Here is uh, a moment in time where we're seeing all these viral videos of people doing massive robberies of retail establishments. Uh, sometimes it's just the petty shoplifting, except in broad daylight and people filling bags full of stuff. Other times it's high-end stores, you know, handbags that cost thousands of dollars each, and there's a clear organized effort to go in and steal as much as possible. Police are supposed to be handling this. Politicians are supposed to be accountable for creating safety in their cities specifically. Mayor Lori Lightfoot, on the other hand, is actually blaming the retailers who are being robbed for not doing enough to prevent these organized retail theft, smash and grab robberies. Some of the retailers downtown in Michigan Avenue, I will tell you, I'm disappointed that they're not doing more to take safety uh, and make it a priority. For example, we still have retailers that won't institute um, plans like having security officers in their stores, making sure um, that they've got cameras that are actually operational, um, uh, locking up uh, their merchandise at night, chaining high-end bags. These purses seem to be something um, that is attracting a lot of attention on the these organized retail uh, theft units. So we've set up a lot of a lot of um, tactics and, and measures to make sure that we're being as responsive as possible, including having a lot of resources in retail quarters all across the city, not just in the downtown area. But we need some of these retailers to also step up and be partners with us um, in this work. Oh, it's the store's fault that there's organized mass theft going on that putting some of them out of business, by the way. Or, you know, that's one way to go. The other way that the Democrats are going is just to deny this stuff is even happening. Larry Krasner, for example, the district attorney in Philadelphia, which has had its all-time high, all-time high in murders already this year, says there's not a murder problem right now in Philadelphia. There's not a crime problem. There's not a crime wave. I mean, he's just a liar. He's a Soros-backed puppet. He's delusional. But, and as a leftist, of course, but that's one way to go. AOC, on the issue of smash and grab... Uh, crime waves in cities said this. We have to talk about specifics because, for example, we're actually seeing a lot of these allegations of organized retail theft are not panning out. I believe it's a Walgreens in California cited it, but the data didn't back it up. Oh, so she's talking about one smashing. I mean, we could sit, we could sit here and just, you know, we could play video for you for the whole show of just people involved in theft after theft after theft. Um, brazen, broad daylight. See here, on a bicycle with a bag full of stolen stuff. Broad daylight, no one cares. No one does anything. Because in San Francisco, they decided if you steal less than $900 of stuff, they're not even going to arrest you. So what's the point? Okay. Democrats know they got a problem here. A problem for their political future. And so that's why even Jen Psaki, because remember, the, the Biden regime has to pretend to care about reality a little bit is saying, look, we're not going with AOC here on the smash and grab robberies aren't really happening thing. Watch. Um, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, appeared to pass some blame on to retailers uh, for these smash and grabs, saying that she's disappointed that these stores are not putting security officers in place, having working cameras, and chaining up high-end bags. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman, said earlier this week also that she doubted allegations of organized retail thefts. Uh, she believed it was a Walgreens in California that cited it, but the data didn't back it up. Does the president believe that organized retail theft is really happening, and should it be on the stores themselves to take action to prevent it? 
Well, we, we don't agree. And I think our actions uh, and the work uh, that we have had uh, in working with the Justice Department, the FBI, and federal law enforcement show that we take, um, we, we have seen some of these extremely video, uh, extremely disturbing videos showing retail thefts, and both major retailers as well as state and local leaders like Gov Governor Newsom have identified this as a serious concern. We agree. Yeah. They got to live a little bit in reality or else they know they're going to get blown out in the midterms. All right, strict COVID-19 regulations have had a major impact on Americans, but what about the unseen effects that it's having on our children? When we come back, New York Post columnist Carol Markowitz joins us to discuss a new study that shows the disturbing impact restrictions are having on America's youth. But let's talk about protecting your most valuable asset first. You have homeowner's insurance for good reason, because without it, a fire, flood, or a burglary could destroy you financially. But there's another major crime your homeowner's policy doesn't cover. It's called home title fraud. The FBI calls home title fraud one of the fastest growing crimes, and it can ruin you financially, which is why you need home title lock. Title fraud happens when a criminal forges your signature on documents stating you sold your home to him. Then he takes out loans against your home and leaves you with the payments. You'll spend a fortune in legal fees trying to prove you didn't commit fraud. Home title lock puts a barrier around your home's title. The instant they detect anyone from a cyber thief to a renter to a relative trying to forge their way onto your home's title, they help shut it down. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if you're already a victim. Enter code RADIO for 30 free days of protection. That's code RADIO at HomeTitleLock.com. Carol Markowitz of the New York Post stops by in a moment. On March 11, 2020, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Flash forward to today, and we're just three months shy of the two-year mark, almost 730 days of Lockdowns, restrictions, mask mandates, vaccines, and now boosters. And now new data is showing that pandemic babies and young children are beginning to experience serious long-term effects. A disturbing new study from Brown University tracking cognitive development in small children between 2018 and 2021 attributes a dramatic 23% drop in verbal and nonverbal development to, you guessed it, masking. New York Post columnist Carol Markowitz has been shining a light on the negative impact of closing down schools, virtual learning, and forcing masks on kids' faces since day one. Take a look at her article from back in May of 2020 titled, No, Governor Cuomo, No, Please Don't Reopen Schools Last, she wrote. Uh, she wrote, rather, I, I care about the well-being of children because I'm in close proximity to three of them and daily witness the toll the extreme lockdown is taking on their minds and bodies. Carol is with me now to discuss... Uh, Carol, let's start with this. How is it possible that more people aren't parents specifically, by the way, which I know you are one, sounding the right. alarm on this? Well, that's really what's so scary about all of this is that people are just accepting what they're told and not going, you know, not doing what's best for their kids, not researching anything, not looking into anything. I mean, in that article that you cite that I wrote in May 2020, I write that we know that COVID does not neg negatively affect children. We know that there are, it's very, very few situations where kids will have a poor outcome from COVID. Um, far less poor outcomes than, say, the flu, which we never shut down schools, we never made kids mask, et cetera. Uh, but what's crazy about it to me is that it's December 2021, and kids in New York City are still masking in schools and still masking outside in schools. It's like 
nothing has changed. They remain suspended in this, uh, you know, security theater that, and, and you can't break it. You can't get into it. I can't complain to their teachers. The teacher has no control. I can't complain to their principal. The principal has no say. It's like all the way up to the governor. It's, and, and it's really a, a problem. It's like a problem that nobody's fighting back. So we all know that a child's Early learning uh, is derived from motor, visual reception, receptive, and expressive language uh, yeah. skills, right? And some experts are saying that kids during the pandemic, particularly because of the masking, but also the virtual learning, are gonna not, they're not just behind now, it's gonna take them years to catch up. What do we know about what it's looking like right now in terms of the educational developmental impact on children from the COVID lockdowns? Right. So I have three kids. I have an 11-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a now just turned 6-year-old. Uh, my 11-year-old and my 8-year-old, they're pretty much fine. But they were always kind of outgoing kids who like um, were sort of advanced in, in their studies. My who just turned my child who just turned six uh, has always been sort of on level and it, recently he's really fallen behind where he should be. He can't read yet. I wrote about it this week for the New York Post. And look, we're parents who are super involved. I mean, look behind me, we're a house of books. You know, everybody here reads all the time. Um, so we're gonna work with him. We've already gotten him a tutor. We're gonna throw everything we have at getting him to, to where he needs to be. But when I started looking into this, it turns out that first graders across the country are facing this. This is a really a, a pandemic, <laughs> you know, not to keep using that word, but um, of, of literacy issues. First grade is the reading year. It's the year that they learn to read, for real learn to read. And when you have a country full of kids who aren't having that happen, especially in major cities. I mean, look, places that had schools open, places that have no masks, those kids are going to be fine, but they're going to be you know, so many kids across the country who are in first grade this year, who are not learning to read properly and who may never catch up. And, you know, I've always joked like, oh, you know, he doesn't read yet, but he'll catch up before college. But like, it turns out that so many of these kids literally will never catch up. And it's, it's scary. And I know it's not a big deal that a first grader is not reading yet. And I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not really stressing about it too much with my own son, but I know that it's a really large problem that we're gonna have as a society. Now, Carol, there's also uh, your article recently written about how you, like me, a lifelong New Yorker, are leaving for Florida, um, yeah. you're moving your family down there, and you went down for a bit during the pandemic, but you came back, mm -hmm. you gave New York a shot, and yeah. now you're just saying enough is enough. I mean, we know that there's this New York City vaccine mandate expansion that just went into, a, or it's just right. been announced, rather. For yeah. all private sector workers, children 12 and older are required to have two vaccine doses up from one for indoor dining, fitness, entertaining. Children age five to 11 require at least one vaccine dose for indoor dining. This is just, I mean, this is insane. They're, they're literally gonna be requiring five-year-olds to show proof of a shot for a virus that has an actual one in a million chance of killing a child and that children are very unlikely to spread to adults. And so this is what has led you to just say enough is enough? Well, it's it's really just the fact that it's, so again, I keep saying this, but it's it's not about these horrible policies, which I think are atrocious. It's about that I don't see people fighting back against them. So it'd be one thing if a terrible mayor floated this idea and New Yorkers got up and said, absolutely not, uh, no way, we're not going to stand for this, you know. But where is that? Where is that happening? It's not. Um, and so in Florida, I you know when you have bad policies on a local level, for, so for 
for example, Governor DeSantis said that schools are not allowed to require masks. And many counties, many blue counties, you know, defied that and said, no, we're gonna, we're gonna still have masking at our schools. Parents rose up in those counties and got that defeated in blue counties, not you know deep red counties. This is literally in Palm Beach County, in Broward, in Miami-Dade. They defeated their school boards and got masks removed. So if I saw that kind of fight in New Yorkers, I wouldn't leave. It wouldn't be about de Blasio's horrible policies. I can put up with bad politicians. What I can't put up with is, you know, half asleep New Yorkers not fighting back against this kind of thing and even being approving of it, thinking like, oh, this will keep us safe. But it won't because it hasn't. Dr. Fauci, whom you are at least in the same the same tier of criticism of as I am, which makes me very happy that I'm not I'm not alone in thinking that he's just shockingly bad at his job and also dishonest and also awful. Uh, here he is on New York City's vaccine mandate specifically. This came out today, watch. In New York, we're seeing the, the mayor introduce a vaccine mandate, the first of its kind for the private sector. Is this the kind of mitigation tool that you see in our future, in your professional opinion? You know, Francis, we, no one likes to be mandating for people to do things that they might be hesitant to do. But quite frankly, you have to, when you're in the middle of what we call a historic experience, of the worst pandemic of a respiratory disease in the last hundred years. First of all, I don't believe that he doesn't like doing it. I mean, I just think this yeah, whole, this, I mean, it's just bull crap. They love doing this stuff. Right. Um, and what's funny, of course, is that a year ago he said that, no, absolutely, he would not support uh, mandating the vaccine. That's the, the thing about Fauci. I would, again, it's like I wouldn't even care if he was just a terrible health official like, who just made the wrong decision all the time. But he is all over the map. You literally can wait two minutes and he'll change his mind and, and say something entirely different. Uh, like a week and a half ago, he said, Americans should prepare for the worst with Omicron. Like we have to, and you know, what does that even mean? Should we all start hiding under our beds? What does prepare for the worst mean for the average person? The very next day, he said, nothing to panic about, nobody worry, nothing to, you know, be concerned about with this new variant. Well, which is it? Are we preparing for the worst or is there nothing to worry about? Because those two things are really at odds. Yeah. Carol? <laughs> We're gonna miss you here in New York, but you also may be seeing more uh, of me in the future th than you expect in Florida. <laughs> so Let's go. I think Let's I've had it. Me. I know, I've had it too. The great red migration continues on. Great to see you, Carol. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Buck. President Biden threatened harsh sanctions when he met with Russian President Vladimir Putin to discuss Russia's military buildup on the nation's border with Ukraine yesterday. But was it enough to avert a disaster? Nolan Peterson, senior editor of Coffee or Die magazine and a veteran, is currently in Kyiv, Ukraine. He'll join us next to give an update from the ground. I want to tell you about my friends at My Digital Money for a moment. Crypto is a place where you can have huge gains, right? There's a lot of action there these days. Bitcoin, Ethereum, dozens of digital tokens to choose from. But where do you get started? That's where My Digital Money comes in. It's an easy-to-use, self-trading crypto IRA platform with concierge-level customer service. It's one of the few U.S.-based crypto companies that'll answer your phone call and help you get started. And because your comfort and security is their top priority, they offer an unparalleled military-grade security for your coins, trigger orders to help you secure opportunities, and a play money account so you can test the market without risking your money. Crypto market's heating up. This might be a great time to get in this exciting technology-based investment. You need a team of professionals who have your back. You'll get that with MyDigitalMoney. Go to MyDigitalMoney.com. Again, that's MyDigitalMoney.com. We'll be right back with more. Hold the line.
The world is becoming more dangerous under Joe Biden. Russia poses the most immediate threat. It has mobilized nearly 100,000 troops at the Ukrainian-Russian border and appears poised to launch a major offensive. What's prompting such international boldness from Russian President Vladimir Putin? It's certainly no coincidence that it comes after Biden's botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, widely seen as a sign of gross incompetence and weakness. Perhaps his handling of other matters domestically and internationally have backfired so spectacularly that our enemies may see him as vulnerable. So what can we expect in the coming months if tension continues to mount in the region? Joining us now from the ground in Kyiv, Ukraine, is Nolan Peterson, senior ed editor of Coffee or Die magazine and a former Air Force's special operations pilot. Nolan, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. So you're there in Ukraine. You've been there for years covering the fighting in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region with Russian-backed separatists. You know the reality on the ground intimately. Tell me, how seriously is the threat of a major Russian military incursion of Ukraine being taken by the people who actually have to deal with it? Right. Well, in the seven and a half years that I've covered the, the war in the Donbass, it's an ongoing war in Ukraine's east. It's a trench war. This is by far the most dangerous moment. We're actually talking about a countrywide invasion, including amphibious and airborne assaults from the south, potentially armored columns moving in uh, from, the east, from the east and from the north. You know, a World War II style invasion of a sovereign country in Europe with about 40 million civilians. So it's a very serious situation. I think as this crisis has developed, both Ukraine's military and its civilian population have been taking the threat more seriously. Again, this is a country that's been dealing with war for seven and a half years. So they're hard to rattle. You know, they're, they're not gonna be hyperbolic or overdramatic about this situation. But now you are seeing people taking it seriously, particularly last weekend, I was out with a group of irregular civilian, civilian volunteers who were training. Uh, to defend Kyiv if it is in fact uh, surrounded or attacked by Russian forces. And it really impresses upon you to be here in a European capital and to take seriously the notion that we could be living out uh, the type of warfare and the type of scenario that we haven't seen you know, since the 1930s or 40s in Europe. What are the calculations that you think Vladimir Putin is making here? First off, what does he want in Ukraine? Why, why would he order an invasion here? And what do you think could be some of the things last minute that might either push it over or not, depending on what he sees as the uh, the likelihood of success? Right. So in 2014, uh, Ukraine had a revolution, a grassroots revolution organized by the people, not the CIA, which is what Russia would want us to believe. And that revolution overthrew a corrupt pro-Russian president, Viktor Yanukovych. After that revolution, which I think sent a strong message to the Russian people that a Slavic population, a Slavic post-Soviet population was able to choose a pro-democratic, pro-Western path. That sent a, it was a threat to Putin. Right after the Arab Spring, you know, I'm sure he was quite nervous about that contagion of revolution reaching Russia. So right after the revolution, Russia invaded and seized Ukraine's Crimean Peninsula, Peninsula and the Eastern Donbass region. And since then, there's been a, a you know, a simmering trench war in eastern Ukraine. And the point of this war effectively is to derail Ukraine's pro-Western trajectory, to divert Ukraine off that path, and it's been unsuccessful. And so now, as Ukraine's military is getting stronger, I believe this is probably somewhat of a now or never moment 
for Putin, President Putin of Russia, to once and for all try to bring Ukraine back under Russia's fold. He has one opportunity now, and he's trying to use it. Um, as far as uh, you know, the effectiveness of the sanctions that the United States is threatening, I'm, I'm dubious of that. Particularly, I don't know if the European Union would necessarily be on board as well. Um, about half of the EU's natural gas comes from Russia, and we're now going into the dead of winter. So. The EU may not have much of an appetite for loving harsh sanctions against Russia, knowing that Russia could effectively just turn off the gas bigots and turn off the heat in the middle of winter. Um, what we can do now, unfortunately, I think is probably too late to do anything demonstrative to give Ukraine the ability to repel a Russian invasion. The aid that the United States has given Ukraine over the past seven and a half years has helped them in the trench war in the Donbass, but it's not particularly going to be stopping Iskander missiles or armored columns coming across the border. I think we should hope for the best scenario and begin to give Ukraine the things that it can use to defend against a major invasion. And I say defend, making sure these weapons are defensive, like Stinger missiles, things that can re help Ukraine resist long range fires and airstrikes in case Russia invades. Here's uh, President that, Biden, You know, as you know, he met with uh, Vladimir, Vladimir Putin. Biden speaking about the discussion. I want to have you re uh, react to it, Nolan. The meeting with Putin, I was very straightforward. There were no minced words. It was polite, but I made it very clear. If, in fact, he invades Ukraine, there will be severe consequences. Severe consequences. Economic consequences like none he's ever seen or ever have been seen in terms of being imposed. Is that enough? <laughs> In the minds of many Ukrainians, it's not. And you see a lot of discussion on social media right now about appeasement. And a lot of Ukrainians are feeling a bit abandoned by the West. They've been fighting for Western values for seven and a half years. You know, they've, they are one country in this world that, that chose democracy, right? I'm a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. I served in the Air Force and special operations. And in those countries, we were trying to convince civilians and populations to embrace the idea of democracy, but Ukraine has done it on its own. And so I think it sends some of a, somewhat of a dismaying message to the Ukrainian population. We keep talking about economic sanctions. On the other hand, um, you know, I think it's clear the United States is not gonna send ground troops to support or defend Ukraine in the event of a major war. And to be well, honest, I would argue that most Ukrainians don't want that. They wanna defend their own country. Um, but you know the threat of economic sanctions is certainly something that I think Moscow has already calculated that they're willing to endure for the sake of um, achieving their end goal in right. Ukraine. And so I doubt that economic sanctions will be enough to deter Russia. Would your expectation be, if this does turn into a hot war, if actually the worst does come to pass in the weeks or perhaps months ahead here, uh, will the Ukrainian people, is it likely you'd see an insurgency against Moscow's uh, efforts there, whatever government they try to prop up. Uh, do you think that that fighting could be continuous for, I mean, you, you've spent time with the uh, uh, the territorial defense forces there, which are just everyday Ukrainians, right, who say they'll fight with hunting rifles if they have to. So is your expectation prolonged insurgency if Putin invades? Absolutely. There will be a countrywide insurgency, a war of resistance against Russian occupation if Russia attempts to hold Ukrainian territory. In 2014, when Russia first invaded, 
the unconventional invasion of the Donbass and Crimea, that sparked a grassroots resistance movement across Ukraine seven and a half years ago. Ukraine's military only had a few thousand combat capable troops then. And it was Ukraine's civilians who formed volunteer battalions, went out east and effectively reversed Russia's takeover of the Donbass and allowed the war to stalemate along the entrenched front lines where it is today. And so there's no doubt in my mind that if Russia invades again and on an exponentially larger scale, you're gonna see a nationwide resistance campaign. And I fear too that such a war would be a humanitarian catastrophe that not many people alive today can possibly fathom. Nolan Peterson from Kyiv, Ukraine. Good to see you, sir. Stay safe. We'll talk to you again soon as this develops. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. Former Chief of Staff to President Trump, Mark Meadows, is making it clear he will not be cooperating with the January 6th committee, a legal gambit that could land Meadows in contempt of Congress. Co-publisher of Human Events, Will Chamberlain, joins us next to give what it means for the January 6th investigation. Right now, I want to talk to you about protecting your digital data. Big tech is taking advantage of us. They're mining our data, selling it, and guess what? We don't benefit from it whatsoever. All the while, they count your money and they abuse your privacy. If you think your email, texts, and messages are private, think again. This is where Secure comes in. Secure's email platform is 100% private. It is Swiss-hosted. They use their own servers in Switzerland and have no ties to big tech American companies. With Secure, there's no data mining whatsoever. It's completely private. This is what makes Secure different from every other email and messaging provider out there. Secure is the best email platform in the world when it comes to security and privacy. It's unmatched. Look, there's a reason Secure built their company the way they did. We need to make a stand and take back our privacy from the big tech monopolies. With my discount code BUCK, Secure will only cost you $750 a month for full access. That's nothing. Go to Secure.com today and create your Secure email address and account. Use promo code BUCK for 25% off for a whole year. That's S-E-K-U-R.com, Secure.com, promo code BUCK. We'll be right back. The January 6th committee threatened to hold former chief of staff to President Trump, Mark Meadows, in contempt if he failed to appear at a deposition scheduled for today. In a statement released by Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney, which they wrote as Rhino in the prompter, which I appreciate, but I love it. I love it. You guys just throwing it out there. Mark Meadows has informed the select committee that he does not intend to cooperate further with our investigation. The deposition, which was scheduled at Meadows' request, will go forward as planned. If indeed Meadows refuses to appear, the select committee will be left no choice to advance contempt proceedings and recommend that the body in which Meadows once served uh, referred him for criminal prosecution. The committee reportedly followed through on those threats earlier today when Meadows failed to appear. To date, a number of Trump supporters and allies have been subpoenaed by the committee, and some of them have chosen not to cooperate or to exercise their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Joining me now is Will Chamberlain, the co-publisher of Human Events. Will, good to see you. Uh, good to be with you. Okay, can we just start with, what the heck is the January 6th commission really doing? And, and why are they, um, what, what do they th- hope to accomplish by, you know, holding people like Meadows possibly in contempt, et cetera? They're trying to use this to punish former allies of the president um, and, and just, just hurt them as much as they can. That's what I see here, because um, if, if there were actually a legitimate legislative purpose 
based on how do we fix the problems of security of the Capitol, well, there's nothing stopping Congress from passing any number of laws to ramp up security, to you know put in place new policies so that there had to be more police when there were protests, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in reality, what this is, is it's kind of a fishing expedition. They're using their investigative powers to just dig deep into anything involving Trump and harass um, the people who helped Trump in the you know in the immediate aftermath of the election and they're doing it extraordinarily aggressively and and lawlessly too um in in a number of ways so for example uh steve bannon former senior ally uh you know, advisor to an ally of president trump's he's had to show up in court already right and he's now asking for a a delay but that's all about the january 6th committee as i understand it isn't it and and so they're they are forcing people to go through this process of defending themselves in court for not wanting to show up and be part of the J6 fishing expedition? Well, it's not merely just not showing up. There's some very serious privilege issues at stake, um, namely it's executive privilege. And, and you might think, oh, well, Joe Biden has waived it. That's the end of the story. Well, actually, no, it's not. Um, because there's there's obviously value to being able for a former president to be able to assert executive privilege if the current president is just has antipathy towards the former president. You know, in general, you want um, the president to get as good advice as he can um, from various people and not have to disclose everything. And and that's that pretty that's already being litigated. Like President Trump is currently suing the January sixth committee in court um, in D.C. court. It's already it's on appeal already. Um, and it's while that's happening, while the litigation about how far executive privilege goes is ongoing, the January 6th committee is currently indicting more people and you know, bringing criminal charges. Like it, it, it's totally out of whack. This is very, very aberrational for any sort of congressional committee in interviewing former executive branch staff. Normally that's done with sort of like lengthy letters back and forth and an accommodations process to not infringe on executive privilege. Um, and they've just immediately gone straight to 11 with indictments for contempt. Who usually or how is it usually adjudicated when there are these issues about uh, executive branch privilege and how that goes when Congress is involved, right? Because, I mean, obviously, under normal circumstances, you'd think who adjudicates? A judge. Congress, though, is running this investigation. So do judge. How does that process work, Will? Well, normally it would be kind of handled more civilly, right? Like in the, instead of a criminal charge that threatens jail, you'd have a civil, you know, essentially a civil suit by the, the committee against the person and they'd have a court litigated and determine exactly how far the privilege goes. Um, but instead of doing it civilly, which which they should do, because there, there's a good faith reason why um, these people are not, you know, testifying or, or not testifying willingly about privilege issues because they're privileged um, or because privilege is a stake. Instead of just doing a civil suit, they're just immediately going ramping it right up to 11 with criminal charges. Um, and they're putting people like not just not just Meadows, but Jeff Clark, who was um, assistant attorney general in the Trump's Department of Justice. They're putting him in a bizarre position because he's got an ethical obligation to preserve privileges. Like if he if he discloses too much, that itself is an ethical violation that could lead to him being facing professional discipline by the bar. Um, and if he discloses too little, according to Congress, they're going to indict him. So he's, he's in this really, really terrible spot and very unfair spot, too. Interesting. This is from U.S. Capitol Police Inspector, Jack, uh, Inspector General Bolton uh, with just an update on the number of officers who have left the department since January 6th. The officers have left the department since January the 6th. I don't have the exact numbers as far as those, but I, I believe it's been around 200 or so. What's going on there? I mean, it feels like Capitol Hill Police has been highly politicized in you know, the intervening months, and there's been a lot of 
uh, focus on on them. Why do you think they're leaving? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe that's a statement of political support because they don't feel enough was done. Who knows? I mean, again, they're the most prominent. Of, there was that very prominent. I don't remember his name off the top of my head. Fanon. That's right. Officer Fanon, that sort of tattooed uh, like liberal who, you know, basically went to Congress and demanded they investigate and prosecute people. Um, so I don't really know exactly why. I mean, I had a friend who's Capitol Police. Like most of the time, being Capitol Police is an extraordinarily boring job. Uh, you're you're literally walking, just you know, providing basic security. It's for uh, for Congress, the built the plant, and for Congress people, prominent Congress people. So, um, you know, it's it's actually kind of like maybe the, all this activity excited people. I've not, but I'm not sure ultimately. And where do you think this all goes? I mean, the January sixth committee obviously will has a lot of political resonance for Democrats, right? They, if nothing else, every time they have a committee hearing, every time they can even talk about it, you know, it's the CNN banner and we're still always reliving that day instead of talking about what an abject failure the Biden regime actually is, you know? Uh, so, so there's clear political benefit from keeping this thing going. But is the plan you think to keep it going for the, all four years of the Biden presidency? Is there are they trying to get something specific as an outcome from this? Where do you think we're headed? Uh, my view is they're, they're rushing to try and get something out of this committee, like anything really that they can use prior to the 2022 elections. Because I think they're pretty, they, they know that they're in big trouble in 2022 and they're likely going to lose the House. And that includes, and, and the Senate, which means that's the end of any sort of committees that will try and do this sort of investigation. They'll, they'll lose that power. Um, and since there's not really any crimes that have actually been committed here, um, but just things that make the president look bad or things that relate to, you know, things that relate to January 6th, there's, there's sort of, they're going to run out of gas because DOJ won't be able to press this further. The only thing DOJ can press right now is these, these very, very uh, specious contempt claims. Will, thanks for getting down into the legal weeds for us. As always, we appreciate it. Absolutely, Buck. Always good to be with you. Coming up, Hillary Clinton just doesn't know when to bow out as part of her new master class. The loser of the 2016 presidential election turns on the waterworks when reciting what would have been her victory speech. Oh, bad. Play the cringeworthy moment coming up in quick hits. Right now, I want to tell you about my digital money again. Look, crypto is a thing where you can have huge upside. If you know what you're doing, you know when to get in. Where do you start? Bitcoin, Ethereum, so many digital tokens. How do you buy your first tokens, right? That's where my digital money comes in. It's an easy to use self-trading crypto IRA platform. They have amazing customer service. They'll actually answer your phone call and help you get started. Look, crypto is here to stay, friends. It's, uh, it's a big market. This could be a great time to get into this exciting technology-based investment. When it comes to your money, you deserve a team of dedicated professionals who have your back, speak to you honestly, and treat you like a human, not a number. Check them out at mydigitalmoney.com. That's mydigitalmoney.com. We'll be right back with tonight's Quick Hit. The BioNTech CEO says a potential vaccine for the Omicron variant should be a three-dose vax, and one LA school bribes students with pizza in exchange for the, uh, them getting the COVID jab without their parents' consent. Yeah, it's time for quick hits. Let's start with this. BioNTech CEO says there could be uh, potentially an upcoming vaccine for the Omicron variant specifically. They might roll this out, they say, in March of 2022. That would be a three-dose vaccine. Watch. 
Yeah, particularly with the, with the, with the data now coming for the Omicron variant, it is very clear uh, this our vaccine for the Omicron variant uh, should be a three-dose vaccine. So let's just, let's just see where we are now. They told you to get the shot and you're done. Turns out, no, you're not done. Now you give it a booster. And now there's also the possibility that because of a variant, you might need a whole new regimen of shots, which would be a three-dose regimen for next year. That means three doses next year, three doses this year, six shots in about a year's time for some people, 18 months. Yeah, it never ends, folks. Never going to end. Never ends for Hillary Clinton either when it comes to her whining about losing the 2016 election, which is still the greatest thing that Donald Trump has ever done for the world. Here she is reading part of what have been her 2016 victory speech, but boo-hoo, didn't happen. I dream of going up to her and sitting down next to her, taking her in my arms and saying, look at me, listen to me. You will survive. You will have a good family of your own and three children. And as hard as it might be to imagine, your daughter will grow up and become the president of the United States. Oh, okay. Uh, So some parents have accused a Los Angeles school of vaccinating children without parental consent. Watch this. A student at the Barack Obama Global Prep Academy in South L.A. brought home this vaccine card after getting the shot at school. And she says that he said yes when somebody offered the vaccine in exchange for some pizza. It hurted to know that he got a shot without my permission, without me even knowing or signing any papers for him to get the shot. Yeah, the vaccines now for some people, it's, it's becoming a a reason for their existence. They need to get everybody to get the shot. They'll bribe your kids. They won't even tell you they're going to give your kids a vaccine. You think the parental permission could we at least be, you know, all on the same page that you need parental permission before you're going to give the shot? Nope, nope, nope. Well, you know, this is what Fauci's done to America. Made everybody crazy. Not everybody, but, you know, the Fauciites. And then there's a woman describing another issue like this. No vaccine means no Santa Claus. In the grocery line, and there's a woman ahead of me talking to her friend that was with her telling her about how she scheduled all of her kids for their, you know, COVID vaccination appointments. Well, she had one of her kids with her who was a little boy. And of course, his reaction to hearing this was, no, I don't want to get a shot. They hurt. Please don't make me get a shot. Blah, 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 blah. Typical kid response, you know. Her reaction to him was this. If you don't get your COVID vaccination, Santa can't come to the house and bring you gifts. Because Santa can only come into the houses of vaccinated children to bring them gifts. Yes, this is what COVID has done to people. The mass mental illness that adults go through because of Fauciism means they abuse and terrify their own children. That's it for tonight's Hold the Line. The No Spin News with Bill O'Reilly is next. Shields high.